Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 139. This interview is with Miko Irola, CMO of IDEAN, a global design firm that works with the world's leading companies, helping them to create long-lasting relationships with their customers through enchanting and elegant experiences. Clients include IBM, Volkswagen, Samsung, John Deere, and Sony. And IDEAN has built a strong reputation across Europe, Asia, and North America. In this interview, we discuss with Miko the challenges of implementing digital transformation, particularly for businesses with retail, that includes digital devices and tools. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to The Minter Dialogue. Today, piped in from Helsinki, an island just uh, just inside of Helsinki, I have Miko Erlang. So, um, so Miko, tell us who you are, what you do, and what is your mindset? Well, hi, Minter. Um, it's good to be on. Um, I'm Miko. I'm head of marketing at IDEAN. We're a global design firm. Um, we work with companies who want to embrace digital, helping them to create relationships with their customers through um, elegant experiences. I would say that my mindset is um, well, open, curious, and foremost digital. I've been working with digital challenges in one way or the other for the past 12, 13 years, and uh that's how I like to view the world. Well, Mika, we we had the um, I I had the tremendous fortune to be sitting beside you on our plane back from Austin at South by Southwest, and I was really struck by the, this notion that you are helping companies in digital transformation based in uh, an agency because this is sort of not the ballywick of agencies. They they most agencies that I know aren't particularly competent in helping to bring transformation into business. They're sort of more worried about getting their advertising revenues. So tell us how it came about that you are doing this as a CMO for EDN um, to help companies in their transformation as opposed to what agencies typically do. Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I think at the, at the core is the fact that we, we don't, as an agency, we don't do marketing at all. We've been around for 15 years and we were built around one key theme. And it's the fact that we believe that products and services are much better if they're built together with the, with the users or with the customers. And um, that has proven to be quite a good approach to also transforming how companies do their business. Because our approach is to get under, under the skin, be it of the user or of the organization, understand what really makes them tick and what, what's their reason um, for existing. And from that perspective, it, we can then look at the... Uh, at the company, at the industry, and and see where the, you know, the endless possibilities of uh, digital transformation can can take them, and you know, digital is quite often thought of as something that it's it's about media or it's about devices or it's about technology. It is about technology, but it's more about um, how the company works and how the people think and how the company is led, um, and and that's a major thing to consider and, and, and it encompasses the whole operations of the company. And often the best way to look at the company is from the outside. So that's where our you know, customer 
centric approach is really helpful because companies often focus on their own processes and people are in silos. So they look at, you know, I'm in customer service. This is what I do. This is how I serve the customer. So bringing an outside in view to the whole transformation has proven to be quite helpful. So tell us a little bit about Idan, um, because, I, you know, it's, it's a large company. I know you're based in Helsinki, but you have a, a wider and global remit. Yeah, I'm, I like to joke that I'm based on a plane, but uh, um, so Idan, um, as I said, we were founded 15 years ago, uh, originally a research company focusing on, on user research and, and usability and, um, and all that. Uh, but in around th- 2003, we realized that research reports are really hard to implement. So we became um, a design company using the same research um, methodology, but the outcomes being um, design. And today we employ about 150 um, designers, developers, and, and uh, strategists. And uh, two-thirds of our business is in the U.S., and the rest is in Europe and Asia. And we work with companies across the board, um, such as IBM or, or Sony Mobile or uh, Volkswagen, Samsung, um, they, the one common denominator being that they have digital touch points and services that somebody has to use. So we focus on, on making those wonderful experiences, be it for a miner deep down in a mining drill using a, uh, deep down in a mine using a mining drill made by our customer Sandvik or, you know, a consumer using a, an application to make their day-to-day life easier. So that's what we do. Well, it's I I, re- I want to get it, I'm going to dig in on that uh, topic in a little while about this notion of of digital within the retail touch point because that's a big one. So let's say when you're when you're going into a, a customer, uh, Miko, mm-hmm. and um, you know you're approaching the digital question, as you say, you're you're bringing an outside point, but you're dealing with the inside of of the company. How do you approach digital transformation? How is how do you structure your approach? And you know the you know that's the first point. And then within that, how do you monetize it? Because I mean, an agency is typically saying, "Well, you know, give me your advertising budget. Allow me to to you know manage your social media. Uh, let me do the buying. You know, how, what's your you know value proposition per se?" Mm, sure. Um, well, first of all, how we start an engagement with a client. As I said earlier, we we aim to get under the skin of both the organization and, and its clients. And what, what that means is spending a fair amount of time talking and, and workshopping with the, with the people we, we deal with in the organization, understanding where they want to go to as an organization. We bring a lot of um, benchmark and research material, good examples, so that we can we can show what others in maybe other, other fields have done and, and that way have a discussion of what could be possible. But another really key ingredient here is doing research on on the users, on the customers of the company. And that might mean that we go to, a, to an outlet and observe how people, uh, if it's a shop, how they, how they behave in that context of the shop. What, what are they looking for? What are they, what are they doing apart from the obvious, which is buying what they came there to buy, buy in the first place. And, you know, if, if we talk about a, a different context, we might, we might observe how people um, use the customer service of a, of a company. We might listen in on phone calls to understand where the, where the friction points are or where there are gaps. Uh, that, that's really key. That's the foundation for the work we do. And from then on, it's um, coming up with hypotheses, coming up with um, prototypes, t- 
testing those um, with the with the users with the customers to ensure that what we're doing is intuitive and easy to use and and really solves the problem. And as far as the um, the monetization goes, being an agency, it means that we we mostly do work um, on a project base, uh, billing for what we do or, or, or a longer engagement where we are working as part of the customer's team. We, our, our folks might spend a year on site with a customer working as part of their development team to ensure that the, the dialogue is, is always there and, uh, and, and things are solved together rather than us as outsiders just going away, uh, doing something and bringing it back. We, we like to, to ensure that what we do, it's, it's really implemented in the organization, both from a uh, way of working point of view as well as a technology point of view. So in the end of the day, really moving away from a design agency, you're more of a, a consultancy, an activating consultancy where you embed and bake into the organization the types of recommendations you've been bringing. That's a, that's a really good point because we see the traditional management consultancies moving to to this space that we've been inhabiting for so long. Um, you look at McKinsey, they talk about design, they hire designers um, because we believe that the age of traditional management consulting is coming to an end in the sense that PowerPoints are really, really hard to implement. Hmm. So, so you yes, mean, the, you mean those big decks of paper <laughs> are not actually worthwhile? Yeah, they end up in a binder on, on the shelves. Yeah. As you seem to have behind you there. <laughs> that, no, no, those are school. Those are school <laughs> binders. <laughs> but uh, we are definitely moving towards towards um, sort of more consultancy type of business. We've been there for a while now. Well, um, so Miko, let's talk a little bit about this um, notion of of the space you're in, where you're looking at companies that have digital elements in the store. So. You know, as in a, a smartphone to check, um, or maybe a, a washing machine for Samsung. I don't know what it what it might be, but give it, give us some of the 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 main pain points that a customer will have. Well, I mean, when I say a customer, the pain customer that you have mm-hmm. uh, in implementing and making happen a, a great retail experience. One of the greatest pain points is actually the fact that retail outlets are turning more and more into showrooms in, in the mind of the actual end customer, meaning that they will they will go to a store, they will check out the selection, they will try on, let's say we're talking about clothes or, or shoes, they try on for size, and then they go online and they, they see where they can find the same item, um, either a different color or cheaper. And that's the, the big question for retailers these days, that how do we compete with, with um, if, if you're a brick, brick and mortar type of um, uh, retailer, how do we compete with e-commerce? And often you have to do some of it yourself. You have to become an e-com player. But if you have uh, a brick and mortar, a store network, that can really work to your advantage as a showroom if you approach it that way. But since many of the retail chains are built so that they're measured as an individual outlet and the store is, is um, they should be selling as much as they can. So it's counterproductive for them to try and be um, a showroom. And that's a big management and KPI question there. Uh, from a customer perspective, it's and in customer perspective, it's um, you know, how do you help me 
find the kind of product I came to look for? Um, can digital touch points help me find the right kind of um, you know model or, or color or whatever it is? Um, and and then when I find something I like, can I buy it immediately there? Being at the store, you know, can it be made really easy with technology such as um, you know barcodes or, or or RFID that you just one click and you've ordered it, and then you have an upsell opportunity right there. So, so what we're talking about is having a basically a single customer view, or how how do you go about finding the this famous K, the, I mean, you know, the magic KPI that allows you to warrant the investment in a brick and mortar that's just going to be a showroom, whereas they're going to buy it at their home online or on the mobile. And and do you also integrate social into that ecosystem? That that's a really really good question because one customer view uh, that's something that that's you know if you manage to build that as a as a retailer or as any kind of a service provider you you build something magic there because the customer feels as if you know them better than their own you know brother or or, or their best friend because you can then. Instead of just saying that, hey, you know, look, we have these new new shirts this fall, you know, they come in grey and they come in blue, say that based on what we know about you, you might be interested in, and, and this is like a standard uh, recommendations engine, but uh, they can they can become so much more than just somebody who who showcases you a bunch of shirts. So that's definitely a key element, and uh, I think social is something that's ingrained in everything we do and how we are as humans. You know, the, the fact that technology helps you, and it doesn't change the thing that you've been social since you were a kid. You always shared your experiences between classes at school or, or, you know, in a cafeteria. Now you can just do it online, and still the fact remains that we trust people we trust more than we, we, we trust people we don't know. That's um, sure. And, and that's, that's one powerful element of, of um, social technologies. Uh, and, um, you know, looking at these... Um, one one customer view. I think the story you told me on on, on our flight together Indeed. serves a, serves as a wonderful example. If you wouldn't mind uh, yeah, well, elaborating on that a bit, well, the British Airways case. I mean, you yeah. know, I mean, just to take the example. So, I first of all, when I checked in on the mobile app, the 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 app did not allow me to check in advance, even though I bought my ticket maybe three months in advance. So the day before, I couldn't get my ticket, my seat, before going in, a business class seat. Then uh, when I go check in, I arrive at the airport, I check in, and the woman informs me that I wasn't able to, uh, that oh, they, they didn't have a business seat anymore for me, so I was being downgraded. Uh, and they would, you could see someone at the embarkation gate for compensation. So I, I then, not, not particularly happy, as you can imagine, after paying a full fare business class ticket, and expecting for the next 12 hours to be comfortable and in, in a good a situation. I, I asked with cynicism if I can go to the, uh, the business class lounge still. And she said, yes, yes. But it really, the, you know, this is where it sort of started to irk me. I got to the business class lounge and there was no recognition by the person who was receiving me about the situation. She was just like, you know, I'm just another Joe blog. So I go in, whatever. Now, I'm not expecting to be treated like royalty by any means, but you kind of feel like, well, don't you know about my context? I've just been shunted by you guys. And at no point, other than the person at the embarkation gate, who was, of course, aware and had to deal with the 
the sinister uh, passenger in the form of me. No one on board. The purser wasn't aware. No one, uh, none of those, the, the flight attendants were aware. And, and, and then, you know, to go on after the flight, uh, the communications I received had zero relationship to my experience. They were just automated, you know, what do you think of our customer service? Uh, and here's your next, uh, please don't forget to check in for your next flight. So, you know, it was as, as if the whole thing didn't exist. And it's impossible for me to dissociate my poor, my poor experience from the communications I'm getting from them. So they clearly haven't integrated this idea of a single customer view across all the different channels. Not to mention the fact that when I got back to the airport with our flight together, you and I, that, that you and me rather, that they didn't uh, recognize me again at the embarkation, at the, at the check-in and so on and so forth. So it was just, you know, business as usual. Exactly. And I think that's a, if not a wonderful experience for you, it's a wonderful example of um, how companies are siloed and how digital or and physical touch points are treated as as they were an island unto themselves. When a customer experiences a series of touch points and experiences, and and that's why, um, if if you if you allow me to to go back in time a bit. Um, We've been talking about UX and, and user experience design for the past 15 years, but for the maybe maybe past two or three years, it's been more about customer experience design because that looks more at the whole customer journey, the whole experience that the customer has, regardless of where the journey starts and where it ends. And that's a really powerful framework to go to a company such as British Airways in this case and say that, hey, you know, who in your organization is responsible for the experience? Do you have a chief experience officer? And oftentimes companies still don't, meaning that, you know, you will have a chap who is responsible for the ticketing um, agent network and, and online sales, and you will have somebody who is responsible for outsourcing the gate agent services to a um, company in each country and, and, and so on and so forth. Nobody looks at how Minter's experience is as a whole, and there's nobody who cares, you know, how how you felt, except for the CEO, whose title might might just as well come from chief experience as a chief ex executive officer. So that's a key question right there. When you're dealing, Mike Miko, with a, a company, let's say you're going to go visit um, uh, Mr. Williams, the CEO of British Airways, how would you get him? To, to put this into place. I mean, because let's assume that the CEO thinks that this is a good idea. I mean, let's just hope that's the case. How, how would you accompany, how would you suggest to them to actually make this come alive? There's no silver bullet in the sense that that's, that's, that's one of the biggest questions because oftentimes CEOs don't have a budget. They don't have a way to actually start a project. They have to delegate to somebody in their organization they have to find someone to take ownership of the the project that that would take take place after a realization such as this or a conversation with with a company like ours and and that's why it requires a lot of um, work beforehand to engage with the whole executive team so that you have the buy-in of of the operations guy as well as the, the the development and the the sales so that 
when it's time to do changes, because it's always about change when you're transforming, then you have somebody who can say that, okay, you know, I'll make sure that the change happens in my organization. And that's why when we talk about digital transformation, it's, it's hard. As all change is hard and, and, and it takes time. And often companies, they start with a siloed approach. They do something. They, they try and build an app for you to, to solve all your problems with. And then they realize that the app is only, only uh, icing on the cake and you know tip of the iceberg and the below of the of the waterline part of the iceberg is so immense and there's processes there's technology there's people's beliefs and there's often people's fears of being fired because they realize that there's you know these these fellows coming in with their ideas of technology it means that somebody else or, or a machine will do my work and what will I do next so they will start opposing the change not visibly but um, just not doing anything about it so uh, one one major question is the human relations or the HR human resources to what extent are you working with them in in these types of transformation processes because in the end of the day as I hear you you know of course we're talking about uh, fear of losing my job we're changing my roles and and clearly HR is going to be has a role in this so to what extent how do you involve them in the process they should be involved from very very early. In the more successful cases, they are actively involved and, and they help mitigate the, the fears and they help, not to say, sell the change, but, but uh, make the change happen so that the, the people are involved in how the change should take place. And, and you have to think about what good it brings to the employees. It is a fact that some people will lose their jobs in many of the transformation cases. And so the question becomes how to engage the people in, in the transformation, ensuring that uh, whatever happens is, feels, first of all, justifiable, because when, when you're part of making things happen, then, then you're partly also taking ownership of, of the change. So that's a, that's a key thing, in my opinion, in my experience, in making, making the change happen. As I said, in many companies, digital transformation is still seeing something that is technology-led, <clears throat> so it's led by IT departments, or it, it might be led by um, development and strategy um, organizations. So this is, I see this as, a, as, a, as an evolution where companies, they make mistakes as they did with uh, their SAP implementations back in the, back in the 90s, and uh, then they realize that it's, it's about so much more than just taking a bit of technology and, and saying that, okay, let's transform. So when you're dealing with a, um, let's say, a, a retail space and you want to help them make for a better experience, what types of, of things will you do, for example, in terms of remuneration changes in order to make for, because in the end of the day, as you were saying the very earlier, you know, we're not going to have all the store sales now involved. Uh, it's part of an ecosystem. But the store salesman oftentimes based on commission. So clearly, this is more of a salary type of role. What other types of things do you, do you have to do in order to implement, facilitate a, a change of the attitude of the employees involved in this customer experience? I wish there was a sing singular 
perfect answer to that. And, and of, of course, there isn't because companies are very different. Uh, their situations are very different. The competition is very different in different fields. But it is about um, giving the people in the one particular store the feeling and, and the ownership of a sale that takes, pla takes place online. And what that means is you have to be able to track if a visit to the store has led to a sale. And what that means is, let's say, you know, you, you have a store, you have an app. What can you do to make sure that once a customer walks into your shop with their smartphone in their pocket, that from the moment they step in through your door, you know that they're in there and you know that this is Minter Dial who just walked in. Because if you know that, then you know that you know, mean to spend seven minutes in our store engaging with Paul. And Paul recommended to him the, this jacket. And then, you know, Minter says thank you. He walks out of the store and ends up ordering the jacket in a different color online. That's a very, you know, simple example. But shouldn't Paul then be rewarded for that sale? Yeah. And what, what you have to do is of course to have the tracking in place and have the data in place, as you said, one customer view, so that you know that means to spend time at the store and then he made the purchase two days later. Well, so if I'm a, you know, I'm a Sony or a Samsung and I've got millions of customers, I therefore have millions of Minters and Mikos walking in through the door. And, and so it can be a sort of a daunting experience. As you said, there's no silver bullet in order for it to make it happen. But you know, what are, what are the types of ways that you go about actually getting that to happen? I mean, what, or let's say put it this way. What are the keys to success in order for this to eventually happen? Because we know it's not going to happen overnight. One crucial element to success is ensuring that whatever you're implementing brings value to your end customer. Because if you expect the end customer to give you their data, if you expect them to download your app, log on to it, and then when visiting your shop, you know, having, having their phone on and the app there, you have to give them value via that app. And that brings us to the customer-oriented approach and the, 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 the user-centric method of, of um, developing. When you go into the shoes of the end user or the end customer, then you can start thinking of um, solutions that bring value to them and hence they are something that they would use and download. Because if you approach it from the Sony or Samsung perspective and just look at, okay, what would bring most, most value to me as Samsung, you might forget that the key point here is to have the customer identify themselves. And as you know, there's privacy and, and all, all, all these concerns that cause people to do everything they can to not be identified. Mm -hmm. So you have to give them value in exchange for their information. Yeah. That's, you know, that's an, that's an individual thing and that doesn't change the whole world uh, as itself. But if you don't succeed in that, the rest of your, your endeavor will, will fail. All right, so I get that. And the end of the day, uh, you know, as, as you and I both are working in organizations, we know that we're not trying to or going to be able to achieve that for 100% of all people because there are more than, you know, thousands of different 
rules, different devices, uh, and, and, and uh, challenges. But what are some of the major obstacles that you encounter, Miko, when you're going in, and how do you face them or tackle them in order to try and implement this sort of single customer view, opt-in uh, experience in a store? That's a, that's a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. It is, it's the meaty one. <laughs> yeah. Um, Depends so much on the situation where the company finds themselves because it very often it's data. We hear all about big data, data being the, the new oil and, and all that. And the oil example is really good because oil is worthless if it's, in, if it's not refined, if it's not turned into plastic or, or, or combustible. Same goes with data. You know, you might be sitting on top of millions and millions of lines of data but if it's siloed and, and not connected to your let's say you have purchase data many retailers they have a huge amount of um, purchase data from their from their retail touch points but it's not connected to the customer mm. they have the customer data their loyalty card data elsewhere if you don't connect those two data uh, data points then there's nothing you can do. And, and that's just the beginning. So it's, I don't like talking about technology as something that it either makes it or breaks it. But in this case, if you don't get your data in place, there's nothing you can do. And how we often go about solving this is not even trying to implement the new thing or, or to test out the new thing uh, in the legacy systems of the company because legacies are legacies for a reason, right? They're hard to, hard to break. So you might go about building something completely new on these new flexible cloud platforms that you can, you know, you take Amazon or, or, or something like that. You, you can build on top of that in, in a matter of weeks and months and you can test your hypothesis. You can, you can have a pilot that you run in a limited amount of stores that they will use this new system. And if you get the, uh, the benefits you've envisioned, the ROI, then you go and say, look, in, in this pilot, we, we got these experiences, we noticed that this thing doesn't work, so let's scrap it. But this seems to bring value to customers and this seems to generate more sales. Let's start a program of implementing this. And then you have the buy-in of the people who sit on top of the legacy because you've shown results. Miko, uh, this, you know, in, the rel in the realm of customer experiences and, and the obstacles one faces, there's always the, the culture story, the people. One of the things that I, I tend to militate for is is um, getting the C-suite and the CEO in particular to be um, more involved in the customer shoes. To what extent do you believe that a CEO should be on Twitter? <laughs> um, it's really easy to say that they are, of course, all CEOs should be on Twitter. Um, it, to, to me, it seems like a huge lost opportunity if you're not. Uh, I'm not sure if a CEO has to be there as themselves, or, but, but to tap in to that dialogue, to see what kind of dialogue the customers are having between each other and, 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 and with your customer service folks. And if, if you're able to jump in and participate into that dialogue, it's 
it's a hugely powerful tool you have at your, your fingertips and, and a way to connect, as you say, to your customers. So it's something that I, I would recommend to everyone, but I realize that it's not for everyone. Mm -hmm. Are there any new apps and sites? You know, we're just at South by Southwest. Uh, mm -hmm. or what, what are the things that you think are hot and are particularly exciting for you as we look into uh, the next uh, 12, 18 months? There, there's so many new apps that it's, it's one week you're excited about one thing, the, other, the, the next week you don't even remember it. But something that stuck to my mind from South by Southwest was uh, Meerkat. Mm -hmm. Did you try that? I you certainly know? did. Yeah, 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 totally. I, I'm so, a meerkatter, meercaster. Because <laughs> we, we had this, um, as I told right, you. So explain, this, explain what it is first. Yeah, sure, I will. Um, so, so we had this um, music showcase thing going on during South by at, at our office, and we had a band playing. And just before the show, a colleague of mine said that, hey, you know, Mika, have you heard about this meerkat? Um, it's an app where you can, you can just instantly start streaming video from your phone, and it promoted on Twitter, it just posted on Twitter that Miko started broadcasting, but it doesn't tell what Miko is broadcasting about. Hmm. So people will click on the link, start watching the cast, and so I thought, okay, well, I'll try this. Um, there was, the gig was going on, and I took out my phone and started just uh, mirror casting, and it's so engaging, because the moment you start, it, first it says zero viewers, and you're like, oh, well, will anybody come? And then, you know, one viewer, two viewers, and you think that, oh, I have all these these people now viewing my cast. I'm, I'm not going to stop right. filming this. <laughs> it, it was such a thrill. You, you don't know anything about it. It's, it's a bit like, um, what was the thing a few years back? This anonymous um, video point-to-point -point chat thing that was a big big thing online. Oh, I can't remember the name of it. Anyways, oh. that you, you know, you're, you're engaging with these people that you have no idea who and where they are. Right, like it wasn't Vine, was it? You were talking thinking about Vine, maybe? No, it was. It was this. It was browser based, and, uh -huh. and uh, you just logged on, and you were connected to somebody somewhere, as we are now, uh -huh. and uh, and and you didn't know who they were and, and uh -huh. where they were. Sounds and like video roulette or something. Chat, chat roulette. Chat that's roulette. Right. That's the one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, but yeah, yeah that is one way. Yeah, what it does speak to, uh, Miko, of course, is the power of video, mm. and I mean, so social plus video plus live, real time, it does put in a number of the, you know, those saucy ingredients into the, into the pie, assuming that Twitter continues to allow for its integration, because I think that there is some uh, competition in the form of a purchase that they made. Anyway, Miko, great to have you on board. Um, thanks for piping in from Helsinki this weekend. How can anyone best uh, get in touch with you, track you, follow you? What's the best way, Miko? Um, I'm very active on Twitter, mm -hmm. as I am on Instagram. So I can be found on those. I'm sure you'll include a link to in your uh, show oh, of notes. Course. What um, is your, your at sign? Because you just, just say it, what it, what it so everyone knows right away. What, it, what my, is your handle? My handle is Tulensurma. Uh-oh. <laughs> you know, there's a story to that, but the moral of the story is never pick a handle um, thinking that, oh, I'll just use this, this once. And it doesn't matter what it is, because uh, I, I was a student in the mid-90s and I picked my handle for an online board where I didn't want to use my real name. And I just took it off a sign on the wall. 
and it became, you know, uh, that happened to be a board which happened to become quite quite popular. So, so now I'm stuck with it. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I mean, of course, you are stuck with the name that your parents gave you too. So, you know, we, we, there are lots of things we have we have to deal with. So, Mika, great. I put all that in the show notes. Thanks for being on board. I loved uh, loved chatting with you. Great to meet you, and look forward to continuing to stay in touch. Thank you so much, Peter. This has been uh, a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes, that really makes my day. Happy trails, and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way. Rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of self security. Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form as long as you would feel warm, wrapped in canvas.
Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 